In the holy name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. This week, I began re-watching a sitcom called The Good Place. I'm sure many of you have seen it or heard about it. Don't worry if you haven't. I won't give away any spoilers, and there are plenty in this series. For those of you who have not seen this sitcom, it's about a young woman, Eleanor Shellstrop, who finds herself in The Good Place after she has died. The Good Place is a place that has been designed by an architect, Michael, and it's meant to be a reward for good behavior. Michael explains to Eleanor that every action we take as human beings was recorded and assessed a certain number of good points and bad points. We're not told who or what does this assessment exactly. Maybe God, maybe karma, we don't know. The show tends to stay vague when it comes to the specifics of religion. What we do know rather quickly in the first episode, however, is that Eleanor should not be in the good place. The system made a mistake because Eleanor did not do all the good things she's being told she did. There's been a problem with mistaken identity. Now, I won't continue as I'll give away some of the spoilers if I do. I always enjoy watching TV shows and movies that deal with religious and theological topics, especially the afterlife, because they give me a glimpse into popular imagination about these important questions. Is there life after death? If so, what will it look like? Who goes where and why? The Good Place articulates a very common view of the afterlife that our good actions and our bad actions are somehow put in balance with each other. There's some type of divine ledger with all our good deeds on one side and all our bad deeds on another. At the end of our lives, the two sides are added up, and if we have a positive balance, we go to heaven or the good place, or a negative balance and we go to hell or the bad place. At its core, this view is a transactional view. Our relationship with God is based on a, a series of transactions with our deeds being the currency. The more good deeds we do, the more money to our eternal treasury, the more bad deeds we do, the more money we take out of our eternal treasury. On a surface reading, today's gospel passage would appear to substantiate this viewpoint. In the verses immediately preceding today's gospel, we're told, do not judge, and you will not be judged. This is command as part of Christ's Sermon on the Mount in Luke, and comes after the Beatitudes, which would appear to be a list of do's and don'ts. After reading the entire passage, we could come away with the idea that Christ is setting up a type of transactional system. Do all these good things, like taking care of the poor, the hungry, and those who weep. Love your enemies. Do to others as you would have them do to you, the golden rule. And don't do all these bad things, like being rich, having all the food you need, or laughing, even. But the question this should raise for us is how? How do we do all these good things and avoid all these bad things? 
The good place understands this dilemma as they make it clear that only the very, very saintly among us can get into the good place at all. Most of us would end up in the bad place, which makes Eleanor wonder, why is there no medium place, like living in Cincinnati for the rest of eternity? <laughs> no offense to Ohioans present. Indeed, are any of us good enough to warrant the good place on our own? But then are we really that bad to warrant the bad place? Why no medium place? Now, some of you might be saying, wait a minute, this sounds like a lot like Pelagian Pelagianism that we learned about in historical witness. Indeed it does. Pelagianism is alive and well even today then the answer would seem to be grace. As Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. I have those verses memorized from my evangelical youth, and they are good news indeed. But what do we mean by grace? In my experience with a tradition that emphasized that we are saved by grace, it often means that our balance sheet gets zeroed out. All the debits have been canceled by Christ's work on the cross. Good news, indeed. For some traditions, the ledger sheet is canceled, but it can be refilled again, so watch out. For others, it's canceled and remains canceled. But the trouble with this view of grace is that it remains transactional. And it ends up, as I can attest from very personal experience, still leading to a lot of judgment. Even though we've all had our debts canceled by Christ's work on the cross, we still seem to be able to find that speck in each other's eye. We still seem to be able to judge each other. In fact, in my experience, religious folk are the most judgmental folk of all, and that's not a matter of conservative versus progressive. I've experienced as much judgment from progressives as I have conservatives. It's just about different issues. Part of the reason why this judgment persists among religious folk is that we cling to this transactional notion of how God works. After all, Christ says, you hypocrite, First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. And we respond, okay, Jesus, I'm going to take that log out of my eye if it kills me. And it just might. And off we go, working hard, so very hard to be a better and better person. And we fail. Over and over again, we fail. Because as another good evangelical verse reminds us, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In order for us to judge another person, we would need to be perfect. And none of us is or ever will be in this life perfect. But boy, we want to try hard to be, don't we? In this passage, Christ is using what Mahayana Buddhists would call expedient means. Expedient means is teaching a preliminary truth in order to help people grow to a deeper truth. Christ is teaching what appears to be this transactional view of the world to try to lead people to a deeper truth, 
that our relationship with God is not based on transactions. Our relationship with God is based on love. God loves us, period. Full stop, end of sentence. It's not God loves us when we do good deeds. It's not God loves us when we love our neighbor. It's not God loves us when we obey all the commandments. No, it's simply God loves us. God does not desire to enact transactions with us. God is not the divine accountant of the universe. God desires to be in relationship with us. God desires to be our divine parent, one who loves us deeply and unconditionally. But if we approach God transactionally, God will meet us where we are and give us plenty of commandments to try to obey until one day we fall on our knees in exhaustion and say, God, help. And God will raise us up and say, I love you. I have always loved you. Good deeds or bad deeds, I have always loved you. If we can let this truth really sink into our hearts, it can transform our relationship with God. But it, it can also transform our relationships with each other. We can begin to see each other not as transactional beings, but as relational beings. And when we see that speck in our neighbor's eye, we can take a look at the log in our own eye, and instead of working hard to get rid of it, we can remind ourselves, oh yeah, look at that log. And yet God loves me with this crazy log sticking out of my eye. <laughs> I guess I can love you with that speck in your eye. Seminary provides all of us many opportunities to be judgmental with each other and with ourselves. It's very easy for all of us, faculty, staff, students, to think of each other as transactional beings and to fall into that trap of judging. But how can we begin to see each other as relational beings instead? Well, there are many ways to do that, but I want to mention one way that we have built in here at VTS. Lunch. Our communal rule of life is chapel, class, lunch. I hope that attending chapel is a priority for us all. Certainly, attending class is a priority. But what about lunch? What is so special about lunch that it should be a part of our communal rule of life? Well, besides the fact that we have delicious food served to us every day, lunch gives us the opportunity to get to know each other, to be relational with each other, if we let it. As we came close to the close of last year, I noticed something about my experience of lunch during the pandemic. When I went to sit at a table, I never had to ask, are you in a meeting? For those of you who have been here pre-COVID, you will recall that being a common question you'd have to ask when you went to a table, are you in a meeting? Oh, sorry, I can sit somewhere else. What if we as a community decided that we would make lunch a time of fellowship and not a time for meetings and getting work done? What if we emphasize lunch as an opportunity to get to know each other, 
to talk to each other, to see each other as relational beings and not transactional beings. This is one small step, but I think it could go a long way in helping us avoid judging each other and instead loving each other. The next time you find yourself judging someone in our community, invite them to lunch. Christ's death on the cross was not meant to simply cancel our debts, zero out our ledger books. No, not at all. Christ's death on the cross was meant to show us God's deep and abiding love for us, that God will go to any lengths to be in relationship with us. If we want to approach God transactionally, God will meet us where we are. But if, by grace, we can let go of that transactional view and see God's deep desire to be in relationship with us, then not only will that transform our relationship with God, but also with each other.